stay home and relax. I'll tell you the trouble with movies. It's too darn many popcorn sacks. Hi, everyone, and welcome to On Location with Jared Cowan. I'm Jared Cowan. On this episode, you're not going to hear any cars or trains whizzing past. You're not going to hear any curious passersby asking us what we're doing standing on the sidewalk with a couple of microphones. None of that. I am recording this opening segment from home. See, right around the time that the stay-at-home orders went into effect in Los Angeles due to COVID-19, we were supposed to record a new episode of On Location. On Location, because that's what we do, right? We interview filmmakers on site at the locations from the movies they've worked on. We were really disappointed, obviously, that we couldn't record that episode. But as soon as it's safe to start meeting up with people again, we'll be bringing it to you, and I promise it's a good one. Like so many, uh, and I'm sure there's probably some of you that can relate, I was feeling a little depressed and heartbroken that I could not continue doing the thing I love doing most. Exploring and discussing filming locations is what I do. It's really as simple as that. This podcast, the film tours that I lead, and the articles that I write are the things that get me going in the morning. I think sometimes people may mistake this stuff as a hobby. Uh, It's not a hobby at all. I consider it my job, uh, a job that I do full-time, and a job that I love. Though I could feel myself slipping into a negative place, I forced myself not to let that happen. I wanted to think of a creative way to continue doing this show. But I'll be completely honest with you. I was a little hesitant of the idea that I thought up because the format of this show is very particular. And it's really important to me to go out on location. Not only do I love being there, but the natural reactions you get from filmmakers at the location revisiting these places, sometimes for the first time in decades, is not something you can capture doing a phone or video interview. I never wanted to stray from that format, but my desire to keep telling location stories outweighed temporarily altering the structure of the show. We'll get back to doing the show the way we want to do it. I know it. I'm often asked on the filming location tours that I lead, what's your favorite filming location? It's an almost impossible question to answer, okay? Maybe by the end of the episode, I'll come up with something. What I usually say, though, and I think this is very important, is that it's not so much the location itself, although some locations are amazing, but it's really the story behind it. So this is what I did. I started reaching out to location professionals from all over North America to see if they'd be interested in self-recording five-minute segments discussing the story behind one of their favorite locations. It could be from a film or series they worked on, or from a film or show that they just love. I was thrilled and really touched, actually, to get so many nice, supportive, and enthusiastic responses from location professionals from Toronto to Hawaii. Uh, Some of the responses came from people I've interviewed before, but a majority of them came from location professionals I just met for the first time via email. The best part of this experience for me was reconnecting and checking in with location professionals I respect, seeing how the families are doing during this difficult time. And it was also wonderful making new connections with location professionals who were excited to tell a location story. So what you're going to hear for about the next hour on this special episode of On Location with Jared Cowan, episode 14, are short segments from 14 location professionals talking about locations that have left indelible impressions on their careers. 
no matter their high points or the hardships they experienced at these locations, they are all great stories. Except for a couple of the segments, I didn't know what locations or what films or TV shows my guests were going to talk about until the recordings were submitted. When I asked my guests to talk about their favorite locations, some knew immediately what they wanted to talk about because the recordings came in pretty quickly. Others needed a little time to ponder it, and a couple of my guests may have snuck in an extra location or so, but that was okay with me. No worries. Just a friendly heads up that the audio is going to differ slightly between each segment. Most of my guests recorded themselves on a smartphone or tablet, and a couple of my guests communicated with me via FaceTime. So, let's join this great bunch of location professionals on location from their homes across the continent. You're going to hear about locations from everything from Pretty Woman to Waco. We're going to start with the very first submission we received. L.A. native Brett Williams is going to tell you about his experiences filming at a faded L.A. icon. Brett Williams. I'm a key assistant location manager. I was a manager for a while, for about six years. And uh, just key assistant fit right into what I wanted to do and not be a manager. Because managers now, it's crazy out there. It is so... They, basically, little TV shows are movie each week. And it's just getting harder and harder just to keep up with the companies. But uh, I've done The Craft, Distinguished Gentleman, TV and film. Um, so, you know, I have a lot of fun with it. When I started at Disney, one of my first films was Pretty Woman. And we shot at The Ambassador. Over my career, I shot at the Ambassador until it was closed. And being one of the iconic places in L.A., I have to say that was one of the funnest and most bizarre in terms of right in the city, right in the middle of the city, and having Paul William buildings there, having just the fear fact that Kennedy was assassinated there, and just the history alone of the place was incredible. I liked it because you got to, when, when you went on a tour of the place, I, I think I did abatement there for asbestos at least 10 times. Because every time a company went back, they, you had to get it checked. And depending on what area you were in, they'd make you tape up and cover any exposed asbestos and things like that. It had a lot of catacombs down below, great ballrooms in the Coconut Grove when it was there. Uh, my parents used to go there and see Sammy Davis Jr. So the history of it alone was impeccable. And I like the fact that they did sell the Paul Williams buildings, the bungalows, separately to keep those intact, they individually sold those off as homes because they were pretty much a two-bedroom, you know, apartment kind of thing. But they sold off a bunch of those to individuals that bought them. It was kind of cool. They lifted them up and put them on a truck and or they cut them in half and moved them on a flatbed. Yeah, well, it was, it was a good location because you had... All the parking there, you had, you could shoot three and four different areas and you'd be somewhere else in the city or country or wherever you needed to be. 
It was very functional in that term that you could literally go there for a couple days and get five or six different looks out of it. When we shot Pretty Woman, it was pretty much right after, a little bit after it closed. I don't remember when, when it actually closed. It wasn't bad at that point. It still looked like a functioning hotel. And over the years, into the 90s, mid-90s, it film crews just didn't give a shit. And they it just started dilapidating. And the people that were running it didn't really care. And companies would come in and do stuff and not fix it back or, you know, get it back to what it was. And so it started deteriorating very quickly. Because a lot of low-budget shows shot there, besides union shows. It took its toll on it. At the end, the lobby, just the floor and carpeting was destroyed. And you really couldn't shoot it as a very, very upscale hotel anymore. And I really wish we could have kept it itself, but, you know, that was doomed for teardown. LAUSD got it, and uh, they decided they're going to build a school. Hey guys, my name is Tommy Woodard. I am a key assistant location manager and location scout here based in Los Angeles, California. Some of my recent credits include Westworld, Star Trek Picard, Disney's Mulan, all of those filmed in the Los Angeles area. But I got my start in the industry uh, in Utah. Right out of high school, I scored an internship at the Utah Film Commission somehow, and they turned me into a location scout and ended up paying me. And so that was about 10 years of my life. Met a lot of cool people, worked on a lot of cool things, went to a lot of cool places, including the Bonneville Salt Flats. Now, you have probably seen the Salt Flats if you have ever seen the movies uh, like World's Fastest Indian with Anthony Hopkins, which was awesome. Uh, even Independence Day was there with Will Smith when he was dragging the uh, alien in his parachute. and Like, what does that smell? And he kicks the heck out of him. <laughs> that was fun. But uh, fun fact about the Salt Flats, they actually hold the world land speed records there. And so once a year around September, you can head up to the, uh, the Salt Flats and watch these jet cars go like three, four, five hundred miles an hour past you. That's, <laughs> that's an experience that you won't forget anytime soon. Another cool aspect about the Salt Flats is it is so vast, so large that you can actually see the curvature of Earth if you just look out. It's so cool. It's hard to explain unless you're there. It feels like you're in the middle of nowhere, but it's an amazing place. If you get a chance to go to the Bonneville Salt Flats, it's on the Nevada-Utah border, and it's spectacular. Another place I absolutely love in Utah is called Goblin Valley State Park. It is in southern Utah and you get a lot of, um, it's, like an, it's like another planet, very alien looking over there, which is why uh, Galaxy Quest shot there. You know, when they're landing their ship um, in this alien planet and one of the guys is like, hey, don't open the door. It's an alien planet. Is there air? You don't know. <laughs> uh, such a such a great movie. So not only do I love working at those locations, I also love to play over there as well. It's amazing. I highly recommend going to the Salt Flats and to Goblin Valley State Park if you haven't already. So anyway, I love being a scout. I love meeting so many new people every day and gaining access to locations that not a lot of people 
get to see and get to get into. So feel very fortunate to be able to do what I do and actually get paid for it. Anyway, thanks again. My name is Tommy Woodard. Stay safe out there and I will see you in the credits. Bye. My name is Vin Liu and I am a location scout, location manager working in the Chicago and Chicagoland area. I've worked in this industry for close to 20 years, and to name a few projects, um, I've worked on features um, such as Flags of Our Fathers, directed by Clint Eastwood, Public Enemies, directed by Michael Mann, television shows such as The Beast, starring the late Patrick Swayze, and NBC's Chicago Fire, to name a few. When productions come to town, they want to see large skyscrapers, glass and steel, the urban jungle. Chicago is a very friendly town. One of the most memorable scenes that I worked on is a network series titled Ozark, um, and it was season one, episode one. The main location they were looking for was an exterior apartment building. I thought, yeah, I can handle that. And then they told me that they wanted to drop a dummy off of a balcony onto the street below for one of the scenes. I wasn't so confident after I heard that. My mind was racing through all the possibility of rejections from property managers regarding that sensitive topic. In the scene, Jason Bateman's character, Marty Bird, approaches an apartment building to confront his wife. He's really mad. She's just withdrawn all of their savings and was planning to run away with another man. As Marty crosses the street, fuming and ranting, then suddenly, out of the sky, smack down comes a body, shoes flying off and everything. And in seconds, all thoughts fade away and disappear as Marty meekly slinks away and makes a hasty retreat. There were multiple challenges with a high-rise residential location. However, luckily I had enough advanced time to find a workable spot. The building in the script, the Aqua Building, wasn't even going to entertain the idea of of the negative connotations of the content. However, there were a handful of properties that were indeed open to allowing us to film in front of their building. They were eventually eliminated due to one reason or another. Three months out, and production decides to eliminate the balcony drop in lieu of a 100-foot crane drop. Okay, gotta get get an engineer survey of the street now, as I started to uh, feel the pressure. The location ultimately chosen was the Mila Luxury Apartments on Lake Street between Wabash and Michigan Avenue. Strategically, that was the most ideal location for an urban backdrop with the streets that we could keep control of for an extended period of time. Due to the nature of the street grid layout, it was just easier to control with minimum amount of police support, and we needed to control it for an extended amount of time because there was a huge crane in the street, of course. The whole time leading up to the shoot, the weather was so beautiful. The sun was shining while we were out scouting. It was glorious. There is no city like Chicago in the summertime. Winter? Not so much. So much planning had gone into the scene, and on the very morning of the shoot, it started raining. Are you kidding me? I had arrived on set at 3.30 in the morning in rain, and by the time of crew call at 6 a.m., there was more of the same. Production called lunch at 12 noon, and we ate nearby watching the rain. However, by 1 p.m., the clouds finally broke. It was literally six, seven hours uh, since since I've gotten there, since crew call, and, uh, you know, we haven't... Sh- done very much except for rehearsing in in rain. (laughs) We literally shot the scene in less than two hours. There were only two lifelike dummies um, that could be used multiple times until they failed because there was a finite number of takes that could have been done. I have never been more wet or more miserable in that extended length of time. But watching that scene and the impact that scene had made 
made it all worth it. That's why this is one of my favorite memorable scenes working on a production. Hi, my name is John Rackett, and I'm a location manager and scout based out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I've been working in film and television production for over 20 years now. I've been lucky enough to get to have worked on more than a few fun and interesting projects over my career, uh, like a few of the Resident Evil franchise movies, Pixels, Fever Pitch, The Expanse, Hemlock Grove, October Faction, American Gods, and Shadowhunters, just to name a few. So, one of my all-time favorite filming locations is a vacant, decommissioned electrical power plant down on the Toronto waterfront. Originally named the Richard L. Hearn Generating Station, it's more commonly known by the filming community here in Toronto simply as the Hearn. Now, the building itself, uh, you could say it's big. It stands at least 20 stories high with a footprint of 250,000 square feet. In comparison, that makes it about three times larger than the Tate Modern Museum of London, and uh, the Statue of Liberty fits in it either upright or on its side. The, uh, the main smokestack is another whopping 70 stories tall, and overall, the land it, can, it sits on is about 40 acres, which makes it equivalent in size to uh, over 40 football fields. So, yeah, uh, you could say it's a big space. Uh, the Hearns appeared in quite a few productions, from countless TV shows to blockbuster feature films, uh, and even is in the Academy Award winning The Shape of Water. So um, I, I've been personally been lucky to bring quite a few shows to film in here, with a little help from some of the creative people I've had the pleasure of working with. It's been transformed into the Godfrey Steelworks in the Netflix series Hemlock Grove, the secret demonic sanctuary lair of the Order in Silent Hill Revelations, and uh, an abandoned upstate New York power plant in Shadowhunters, and the underwater former Soviet submarine base of the Nefarious Umbrella Corporation in Resident Evil Retribution. It's always been one of my favorite places, just because it has so many unique looks, ranging from the Art Deco feel of the office and the administration building, complete with this really cool tile change room, uh, the original control center on one of the high floors that really makes you feel like you step back in time to the 1950s with all that green-colored knobs, tubes, and levers. Not to mention the, uh, the, the wide-open, brutalist concrete pieces all over the place. And with all the machinery and turbines removed a long time ago, it's just endless catwalks and stairwells that go from the floor all the way to the top of the ceiling. It's the kind of place where you get to watch a new director or production designer and producer and cinematographer walk in and just see their eyes go huge once it all just sinks in. I mean, it's basically overwhelming at first. It's just, there's just a wonder and majesty within just the sheer size of it all. And it's always been amazing to see how the space just becomes a playground for the total creativity. It's always been one of the reasons it's a fair place to come to. Well, it's been really fun to be able to share this location with you all. If you'd like to see more of the projects I've worked on or follow me on social media, check out my site at johnrackage.com. Thanks for listening. My name's Andrew Ullman. I've been working in locations for over 29 years. I had the honor of working on such films as Apollo 13, Jerry Maguire, The Truman Show, Payback, The Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, the remake of The Time Machine, Signs, Cat in the Hat, The Village, The Game Plan, The Road, Lawless, Saving Mr. Banks, Triple Nine, The Founder, Tag, Irresistible, Love Affair, and many others. One of my fondest memories was day 34 of 50 working on John Hillcoat's film The Road, I had a lot of memories of that show, given that we started scouting in the dead of winter in Pittsburgh and shot such environmentally altered sites, which uh, is not 
easy obtaining permission for since we were dealing with coal and reclamation companies, which are usually LLCs fronted by attorneys given the liability. Um, that day we shot at the LaBelle reclamation site in LaBelle, Pennsylvania. It's basically a tiny, tiny town with a couple blocks of homes, a post office, and it's across the Mongahela River from Frederickstown, PA. It's almost like a peninsula surrounded by the river. And on it sits this giant reclamation area, which is well over a mile in diameter. And at the time, it had just incredible piles of burnt coal from some of the local power plants. Uh, it gets brought down there by a barge, offloaded, and pushed into the ground, and then eventually seeded over. Um, when we got there, everybody was kind of in shock and amazed at how post-apocalyptic the landscape was, as well as the scope of it, since it was like a mile of burnt coal. It was not a great thing that everybody could see this, the slag, the burnt coal was falling into the river itself. Um, it was also ironic that the Weinsteins met us across the street from this private prison um, and they were right in front of it with their entourage. Anyhow, that was pretty memorable because we kept topping each location and that one was so perfect. I just remember the sound mixer who was, it was, he was telling me it was like one of his last jobs was speechless. He was so impressed by the look of it. Hi, my name is Ashley Valdez. I am a location manager and film scout in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I've been working in the film industry for 12 years. I'm a native to New Mexico. Jared reached out to me after he saw a miniseries I worked on a few years ago called Waco, which was something else to work on. Uh, I was originally about to start on a different show called Get Shorty, not the movie, the series, when my friend Clay reached out and begged me to come join him on Waco. They were still prepping and they had just lost the location manager, so Clay got bumped up from the key assistant to the manager. He's one of my best friends and Waco just sounded so intriguing, I jumped on immediately. The production designer, Arm Graywall, was very particular for every single set. He really did his homework. He would show us pictures and documentaries from the time and every single set had to be exact. When we were trying to find Gary Nosner's house, who Michael Shannon plays in the show, Arv would just show us pictures of Gary's house and his family and wanted it exact. I mean, all the way down to the pink carpet, which was pretty hard to find pink carpet that was still nice. What's tough about a house like that was two things. One was that it was a high-end house for the late 80s and the early 90s. And two, to find one that was still in really good shape that people took care of. Growing up here, I started brainstorming, trying to think of who I knew that built their own custom house back in those days that still really took care of their house, too. And it turns out I knew the exact house. It was a childhood friend of mine. I took Arv over to check it out, and it was an exact match all the way down to the pink carpet. Uh, we shot that on a six day on a Saturday and it came out great. When it came to Mount Carmel, that, that wasn't that easy to find. We needed a location that was flat, secluded, and it had to have 
across the street, the ATF house. Clay searched everywhere. I mean, we we looked everywhere, and finally, he found the perfect location in Stanley, New Mexico. I remember the day he found it. When you're a location scout, you're kind of like a detective. I mean, you find this bitchin' piece of property that would work perfect for the scene, but there's no address, there's no name. The neighbors kind of heard of who owns it, but aren't sure because they're never around. So you really have to dig in to the property to find the o- the owners through county assessors and through white pages and funny enough background checks sometimes. And after you after all that, Clay found it. He found the owner, and he went out to go take some better photos of it. <laughs> I think that. The owner uh, forgot to let his son know that Clay was going to go out and scout it. So while Clay was out there taking pictures, the owner's son came up and pulled a gun on Clay. He thought he was trying to take some cattle or I don't know what he thought. So he got a little shook. I think that was the first time Clay got a gun pulled out on him. But lucky for us, the owner also owned the little house across the street. That was his grandma's house. And we turned it into our ATF house. As we kept going with the series, things started to get crazier and the schedule started to get more compact. So our studios, which were in Santa Fe, were about 45 minutes from the compound. So we started building some of our sets on the compound. I remember David Thibodeau, who was one of our consultants on the show, uh, walked into the compound and just teared up a little bit because he remembered it looking exactly like that. And our art director, Billy Ray, and his construction crew just nailed it. Um, it got a little tough for the neighbors out there because we were doing FAA permits so we can fly the helicopter so low and down near the compound. And it was pretty loud and their poor horses got a little bit scared. Towards the end of the show, Clay left on the fifth episode, and he just jumped off the boat, and I took over and did his job in mine. When it came down to finally burning down the compound, we had about 10 water trucks, a whole trench surrounding the compound in case the fire got out. When we burned it, it went down a lot faster than I thought it would. After it was all done, we cleared it out, we restored the property, we reseeded it, and it looks great. I've been out there since. I took another movie out there. I think that area is just, it's beautiful out there. I really like Stanley. I love New Mexico. It's gorgeous. And if you guys ever get a chance to come out here and visit, I highly recommend it. Thank you again, Jared, for reaching out to me and letting me share all these fond memories of Waco with you. Take care. Hi, my name is John Crowley. I am a location manager out of Austin, Texas. And my greatest experience or one of my favorite locations I've ever been, I've ever worked on was down in New Zealand on the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I was the South Island location manager for that movie. And it was such an awesome and amazing experience to spend that much time um, in New Zealand working on something, you know, that, that size. And my favorite place we shot was out at a property called Elephant Rocks, which was outside of a small town called Amaru. And the property owner was a family named the McKinsey's. It was Norm and Di McKinsey. And 
as we were filming, um, or we were, the property, the location was a, was a very interesting place that had these rock spears coming out of the ground. And, you know, it was key that we kept the grass around these areas pristine. So the horses were running through it. It was just this gorgeous meadow. So we, there were fences around to keep the sheep out. And so the morning of the shoot, um, they get there and, you know, the DP gets there and wants all the fences pulled out. So I run down to the McKenzie's house and wake up Norm and, yank him out of bed and he comes up putting on his overalls and he um, starts to take the fence down by hand. And as we all know in the film business that uh, that's just not fast enough. So he goes down and gets his tractor and he hooks it onto the back of his tractor and just rips the whole fence out posts and everything and takes it down to his property. And I assure him we're going to, you know, buy him a new fence. And so later he, um, I go down to his house after filming was done and he has his, this barbed wire fence stretched in between two tractors and he is untangling the fence. And when I asked him what he was doing, he said, there's no need to buy him a new fence. This one was perfectly fine, which I thought was just such an amazing thing to witness and just, just an amazing thing to experience after all of us that have worked in the film business and we see the amounts of money that, you know, come and go and exchange hands that this guy was thinking he was going <laughs> to help the Narnia movie out by saving them the cost of a, uh, you know, 100-foot barbed wire fence. So after I convinced him we were buying him a new fence, it was unnecessary. Um, we went and had a few beers and it was quite fun to drink with Norm because he would uh, basically sit down all the beers he had and he would open all of them so needless to say it was a very long night it just it was one of those great memories that i've have of working in the film business again my name is john crowley i'm a location manager and scout from austin texas hey this is uh doug dresser supervising location manager when i was uh when i was early in my career i had an opportunity i wasn't getting all the craziest best movies offered to me because i was pretty young and um and then one year just before the holidays it happened to be available and i get a call from a from a producer and they said uh we had this movie that we want to do by the end of the year. It's uh, directed by Joel Schumacher, and it's starring this young actor named Colin Farrell, who no one had heard of at the time. And uh, and we want to shoot it before the end of the year. And uh, the only problem is it's, it all has to take place in one location. And the movie was called Phone Booth. I think three or four other location managers had turned it down because um, they actually did some research and like uh, or knew better than to take on a job just before Christmas in downtown Los Angeles. But I was kind of young, and I said, "Well, I don't know. Let me let's tell me about it." And they said, "Okay, it all has to take place one location. We're going to double New York in downtown L.A." And I said, "Well, let's have a meeting about it, and let's meet at the film office." the permit office. And then when we get down there, I'll determine whether or not I'm going to do the movie or not. So we arrange a meeting and we all show up and it was EI, the Entertainment Industry Development Council at the time, the EIDC. We all go down and I meet the producers and I meet the production managers for the first time in the lobby of the film permit office. And we go and we sit down with the head of the permitting agency at the time. And we say, all right, can this movie be done? We wanted to do a two or three block closure in downtown Los Angeles. And it was the same year as a 
30-day MTA bus strike and the Democratic National T Convention, where the where the LAPD essentially told the entire downtown area that they should close for the two weeks of the Democratic National Convention because they couldn't guarantee their safety. So we said that we needed a three-block we needed a three-block closure. We kind of decided we could probably do it with a limited time. We could probably avoid rush hour. And uh, the EIDC says, okay, fine. We'll give you three different blocks that you can choose from. They gave us 7th Street, 6th Street, and 5th Street. And we went down and, and they said, okay, everything sounds great. So we go out back into the lobby and I look at the producer and production manager and said, okay, great. I'll take the job. Let's go downtown. So we go downtown and we start looking at the streets and we start looking at everything that's there and we look at 7th Street and it's two ways and we look at 6th Street and it's one way but it's busy and then we look at 5th Street and it's a little kind of quiet and it's a little bit and little not quite as exactly what they wanted. They say, okay, great, bring Joel Schumacher down, Andrew Laws, the production designer. We all decide on 6th Street. We start getting everything together. I get my location team on it. We start going door to door and we start planning it. Now we're talking about turning it into Times Square in New York City. So we're talking about every building controlled, every street, street front, every, you know, every storefront controlled, putting the, the phone booth on an alley, closing a street, closing a road, doing billboards the size of the entire buildings that we're going to drape, drape from the, from the rooftop levels. And we need to control the whole thing. So they want to, of course, everything has to be done on a budget. So I put in my first budget. Then we start talking to all the neighbors and I put in a different budget. And it's just, it's creeping up and it's creeping up and producers are going, this is ridiculous. This is costing us too much money. And then we start dealing with the large wholesale jewelry retailer on the corner. It's about 40 or 50 different um, vendors inside this one, uh, this one building. And they now realize that we are going to close down their street the same day, the same year as the convention, the same year as the bus strike. It's the only time they're going to be able to get their money back. And they are freaked out. And really rightly so, because we are going to be closing the streets and extras and police and having all kinds of activity that will be there that would really limit their their ability to get their people in. Now, we had plans in place where we were going to we were going to make sure that we could have access to the to the stores and to the businesses and everything like that. But it would have definitely been an impact. We try and address these problems. We go to a, we go to a, to a meeting, a public meeting that happens at the end. I stand in front of this place and I have literally 50 people just screaming at me, just screaming at me. Don't you dare do this to us. Don't you dare do this to us. And we're all standing there and, uh, we go, okay, this is going to be a problem. Walk out of the meeting. Next day, get a call from the council office. Who had, we had talked to and we had, we had kind of briefed, um, and, uh, but they now want to have a meeting. We have a meeting with the, the wholesalers associations, the city councilmen and a special liaison from the mayor's office at the time. And, uh, we bring in heads of the studio, we bring in the head of production and, um, and then all of the producers and, uh, and they basically say, even though we told you that this was okay, even though this permit is, is pending, we are going to withdraw it on 6th Street. And we had to move one week before shooting from 6th Street to 5th Street 
from Broadway to Los Angeles to completely redesign the plan. We completely switched gears and with one week before shooting had to move from 6th Street to 5th Street where we went and we through the miraculous effort of my entire locations department, including Nancy Haker and a number of other people, we, uh, we switched from 6th to 5th and, uh, and shot the entire movie on a different block than we had been prepping for about a month and was the smartest move we ever made. The people on fifth street loved us at the time. Um, and, uh, and we, uh, and we successfully made the movie and that's why a movie with one location was the hardest one I had ever done. Thanks. Hi there. My name is Scott Alexander. I'm a location manager based out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I've been in the uh, locations industry for just over 20 years. Uh, a few of the films that I've worked on recently have been uh, The Christmas Chronicles 2, uh, The Mrs. America miniseries, Fahrenheit 451, It, Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage, Suicide Squad, the remake of Poltergeist, the movie Pixels, a favorite location of mine that I've used when filming is uh, I, I like to use a lot of road closures in the movies that I've been doing recently. Uh, a big one for me was in Suicide Squad. We closed down a huge section of Lakeshore Boulevard in Toronto, which is a major thoroughfare to film a scene after the uh, helicopter crashes in a parking lot and the squad gets out and then they cross the street and start their journey that's a, a big major scene that was quite a lot of fun to film and also in that same movie there was a, a scene uh, in the financial district of toronto uh right at bay street and uh bay street and adelaide street pretty much where we installed a downed blackhawk helicopter crashed in the middle of the road for the scene where uh waller gets uh taken and that was just a so memorable to film these scenes, to do these giant road closures is what I love to do. I love the logistics around it. I love trying to figure things out. I love making it happen and then doing it in the middle of a giant public area like that and controlling it and making it fun. It's just always something I've really enjoyed doing in my career is these massive road closures that involve a lot of dressing and a lot of logistics to it. It's just an aspect of the business that I really enjoy doing and, uh, yeah, that's probably one of my favorite locations. It's not a specific location, but it's uh, doing road closures and logistically challenging tasks is a lot of fun for me. A lot of people say I'm crazy, but hey, that's a lot of fun. Anyway, that's uh, it for me, and uh, this is a great podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jared. Appreciate it. Uh, my name is Jason Wish, and I am a location manager and director. I can't say there's any been one any location that really made an impression on me because I, I, I really do it's kind of like each one's your little kid a little bit so uh, there, there's ones I go back to over and over again and I, I can't say necessarily one is my favorite I love using First Castle which is uh, uh, also known as the Dogtown uh, Pool and she, the lady that owns it me is actually a, a location manager so she might actually hear this but I, I, she's super friendly and it, it's an easy go to and people always love it it's, it's a creative place I use the Alexandria a lot because I can, you know, whenever I need a ballroom, it's just, they have three there and they're all really interesting looking. I use the Paramore a lot. I actually directed a music video there. And so I'm pretty friendly with those guys. So I can call them up and, and you know, they're, they're pretty reasonable when I have 
jobs that they know that I don't have money. And then the, when when I have money, I give it to them. And it's such an odd, weird, you know, over the top place that it's it's always fun to shoot there. Parking obviously is hard, but I, I always deal with it. I'm able to deal with it. But uh, you know, there, there, there's a lot. I love shooting at the beach too. Like it's just so to me. I love the beach whenever I can shoot the beach because I know it's going to be a pretty easy day for me to just sit watch the ocean all day. I uh, Some of my uh, bigger projects are, of course, um, I was the location manager for Happy, uh, the music video by um, Pharrell Williams, which I ended up winning location manager of the year. Uh, the number of locations, I think, in the Happy video, I think the, the time I calculated it, which was a couple of years ago, I think there was over 70. I did all the location work myself. I didn't have an assistant. It was all me. I did find out after the shoot was over that the production manager came to me and he said to me that they had actually budgeted uh, for three location managers and three assistants. And he goes, you did everything. You did You did the work of three location managers and three assistants. It's just I'm, I'm used to just, I just figure out how to get it done. I just, I just, and, and, and one of the ways I was able to get it done was originally the, the, the directors were asking for each individual location. They wanted me to find 70, all these locations. They listed off. They, I was in their office for an hour and a half, and they rattled off unbelievable amounts of locations that they wanted. And what I ended up doing, uh, first off, this was on a Thursday. Friday was a holiday that week. Monday was a holiday that week. So I had nobody to contact, really. Uh, so I just basically went out and scouted. And what I convinced the production to do was, to do grid permits instead of trying to uh, do individual locations, I convinced them to do a grid permit of de- different locations so that we could walk around the locations and if we happen to stop someplace, I could deal with. And they wanted to go in, which happened. I could deal with it at that time instead of having to clear all these locations a week and a half before we we're going to shoot. Um, and it worked out. We, of course, we were only supposed to have 15 people behind us uh, to explain what we're shooting. The talent is walking, the camera was walking backwards, and all the production was behind the camera, walking in front of the camera. We were only supposed to have 15 people, and I recall at least one time I turned around and I counted probably 55 people. Uh, I helped uh, locations on um, Maroon 5's Sugar video. I recently did Beyonce's video um, for Lion King, of which other location managers had done some work. Uh, they just called me at the last minute and said, want to add some stuff can you help us on it and i was um able to actually close down the grand canyon for uh for a day for her <laughs> closing the grand canyon down was was something uh kind of unexpected i i basically they asked me if there was a way to get the havasu falls and this was on a monday and they wanted to shoot on a wednesday and i i basically said there's not a chance uh, but I'll, but but the one thing that I will say that I always do is I at least tell them I'm going to do my best to, to try. So I I, I, I ran into a bit, little bit of luck. I called the production person from uh, Arizona um, and I talked to him, and he just happened to mention to me for some reason that his brother was James Earl Jones, and I basically told him, I, "Let me call you right back." I hung up the phone. I, the producer was in the car with me, and I said, listen, I hadn't told anybody that I was talking to what project it was. So I turned to her, and I said, i got to call him, and i got to tell him who, what it is and who it is. She said, do what you think is best. I called him back said, listen, this is for Beyonce. It's for her new music video for Lion King. And he kind of paused. He went, all right, let me see what I can do. 
So he ended up calling and somehow getting the number for the Havasu Falls uh, Indians, uh, their their um, lawyer. And I called the lawyer Tuesday 11, explained to him what we were doing. He said, it's going to be impossible. He said, let me see what I can do. He called me back at 1.30 and said, you guys can shoot here tomorrow. <laughs> so it was like, I want to make it seem like, I, I jokingly tell people that I closed Havasu, uh, the, uh, the Grand Canyon down, but the truth is... Uh, Beyonce closed it down, you know, and with her, with her power. Hey, greetings to all out there in isolation land. My name is Derek Brady, and I've been fortunate enough to work primarily as a location manager for, dare I say, some 30-odd years, based out of Toronto, Ontario, Canada, surviving through many of the ebbs and flows of our industry, such as the current workplace stoppage most of us find ourselves in. Recently, I've had the pleasure to work on such series shows as Titans, 12 Monkeys, and American Gods, among others. And at various times over my brief career, I've occasionally been asked, what's been your most difficult location or scouting experience? Too many, but on a different perspective, sometimes what seems simple enough turns out to be not, as many of us knows. As it was for a project many years back called A Separate Piece, directed by the late, great Peter Yates of bullet fame, when I had to resort to scouting, believe it or not, by helicopter, to eventually find a large, magnificent tree and landscape as the primary setting for young actors to leap from into a small lake or pond. It all worked out. Or, most enjoyable location or scouting experience. Well, there have been many, but one I would have to mention was working with the late production designer, Tom Sanders, as we scoured various eastern Ontario landscapes, climbing up and down hilltop terrains over many days to find the proper setting to place Tom's vision for the facade of the Scottish mansion in Guillermo de Toro's Crimson Peak. Tom's truly collaborative talent was what made that scouting experience extra special. He's missed. An interesting filming location I would like to briefly chat about today is known as House on the Rock, also referred to in the book American Gods by Neil Gaiman, which is situated at the edge of a majestic valley in Spring Green, Wisconsin, about two hours west of Milwaukee, a tourist site seemingly not that well known outside of the Midwest. I certainly was not aware of it until I became involved as a location manager on the show. And subsequently reading the book as guidance, knew at some point that House in the Rock would potentially be needed as a setting. Later, near the end of the production on the first season of American Gods, due to production and scheduling issues, decision was made that any locations being envisioned for House in the Rock would have to be pushed for filming in a hopeful second season. Well, during that long hiatus between seasons one of two of American Gods, while working on other projects, I hastily decided to take a weekend trip out to Wisconsin and check this mysterious place out for my own research. Research being my code word for, I need a road trip badly. I made contact with management upon arrival and power toured through the vast, multi-leveled site that includes the original 1950s house, cliffside annex, red room, and organ rooms, and understood why Neil Gaiman had used this bizarre setting for his infamous book. Thinking to myself all along the way, to what degree of madness had prevailed over eccentric visionary, builder, and collector Alex Jordan? to conjure up such an entity known as House on the Rock. But damn, if this peculiar place would not also make a hell of a filming location for American Gods. And so it became, true to the words, if you build it, they will come. Yes, they will come. But regrettably, without me, cue the violin here. As the long-awaited start of American Gods Season 2 finally got underway, maybe my absence was due to the far-flung Toronto locations our team needed to get ready for initial episodes. Or maybe it was the fact I couldn't convince my producers in allowing me, or any of my location colleagues for that matter, the opportunity to join the small contingent of cast and crew 
that eventually traveled to the house on the rock. Well, it all went smoothly without me, using the impressive carousel on site, apparently the world's largest, as the featured backdrop for most of the primary scenes. Trivia note here. Some of the exterior scenes were cheated and filmed back in the Toronto area. But trust me when I say that no still photos I have seen online or other does the House on the Rock justice for all the strange and wonderful intricacies it beholds. Truly a site you have to visit on your own, and you actually can, 365 days a year, excluding pandemics, of course. I hope to eventually get there again with another film project in the near future to take advantage of some of those truly outlandish and funky areas that cannot be replicated on any set. Cheers to all. My name is Rory Inc. I'm a Northern California location manager based in San Francisco. Though I had been a location scout for several years prior, my first film as a location manager was in 1981 on a film directed by Alan Parker titled Shoot the Moon. During my career since then, I've had a push me, pull me, cinematic love affair with the remarkable San Francisco City Hall. We have offered it up as a set choice to several directors, designers, and for a large variety of narratives throughout my whole career. In Philip Kaufman's 1983 film, The Right Stuff, it was used for the Halls of Power, a set that threads itself throughout the entire story. And in 1985, we set the roof aflame and burned it on the James Bond story, A View to a Kill. In 1988, we began the finale parade in front of this grand building in Francis Coppola's Tucker, A Man and His Dreams. And in a broken city hall in 1991, just after the Loma Prieta earthquake, Gene Hackman argued to a court that we staged in its Board of Supervisors chambers for Michael Apted's movie, Class Action. San Francisco City Hall is a magnificent natural light factory for cinema. At certain times during the day, the sunlight beaming in through the lead glass will stop you mid-sentence and your tracks. Cinematographer Conrad Hall lends these naturally lit environs for several days throughout the entire shooting schedule of class action. In 1998, Robin Williams returned to plead once again to a court we constructed in the Board of Supervisors chambers for Chris Columbus's film Bicentennial Man, based upon the Isaac Asimov book. And once again, the newly restored rotunda was used for a ballroom scene in this film. During one evening, filming for Bicentennial Man, we met with a situation that caused it to rain and briefly flood the entire set. The details of that story are much too ominous for this brief, but in short, this was absolutely the worst evening of this location manager's 40-year career. In 2006, while we were filming the movie The Pursuit of Happiness, actor Will Smith would run the miles of hallways and steps to work himself into a sweaty, frothy entry to a scene we staged in what was then mayor, and now governor, Gavin Newsom's office. We even 
were able to pick up shots in one of City Hall's many classy bathrooms on the first floor and staged them to look as though in the film they were in a bus depot. When one enters San Francisco City Hall, you're first up with a security station with metal detectors that are still active and darkly reminiscent of their first installation immediately after the 1978 murders of Supervisor Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone. This story was revealed and told in the 2008 Gus Van Zandt film Milk. Once you're through the metal detectors, you enter the rotunda and view this magnificent staircase that Harrison Ford descended in one of the final scenes in the film Raiders of the Lost Ark. City Hall is located at the Civic Center, which borders the Tenderloin District. There is never a dull moment with unit logistics. And my cinematic love affair with City Hall has always been an adventure. I know it has many more stories to show us in its rooms, in its halls, and its environs, and in the future. If you're in San Francisco, I really recommend you go check it out. My name is Ian Rutherford, and I'm a key assistant location manager working in Los Angeles. I've worked on projects like Terminator Genesis, Lucy in the Sky, Zombievers, and La La Land. Location scouting wasn't even on my radar until I saw Inception, and in the credits, there was someone who was credited as location scout. At that time in my life, I needed another job, and I knew I had found it. Location scouting was the job for me, and so far it's been really great. I've been to the top of several skyscrapers in San Francisco. I've worked inside caves and morgues. However, the opening musical number from La La Land on top of the 110-105 freeway, Fast Track Lanta in Los Angeles, is the one location that stands out from the rest. Robert Folks and Tristan Diosis deserve all the credit for setting up the location. It was a ton of work, and I know Robert and Tristan did a lot of coordination with local officials to make sure it went off seamlessly. While they got to prepare the set, I, however, got to be there for most of the actual filming, which was an L.A. hot Saturday and Sunday in September 2015. On concrete, no shade, a few hundred feet in the air, and nothing but high-speed traffic buzzing underneath. Production had taken control of the freeway at midnight Saturday morning, and it was the dance before the dance just to get all the picture cars and support trucks up and arranged on the overpass before the camera started to roll. Filming was tough, but everyone on the crew was into it. I've previously worked on a couple projects that filmed on freeways, but none were this ambitious. Production was scheduled to wrap filming on Sunday evening, around dusk, we then clear and clean the freeway of all equipment and vehicles. As we approached the end of the day, just when it was getting dark, someone announced over the walkie that tonight there would be a total lunar eclipse. Beat but feeling good after wrapping a couple eventful days on top of the freeway, the cast and crew gathered on the overpass to watch the total lunar eclipse together. It was an enormously satisfying and fitting end to a memorable location. Greetings. I'm Matthew Nowak, a location scout manager currently based out of Portland, Oregon, my home state. In early 2008, I found myself hitting the pavement, student resume in hand, in the bustling city of New York. It's in New York that I was given the opportunity to join the locations community. My initial contributions were to episodic TV series such as Fox's Life on Mars, 
HBO's Boardwalk Empire, and Cinemax's The Nick. I also had the opportunity to contribute to feature films such as Now You See Me and Anchorman 2. It was in February 2012 that I was given the opportunity to contribute my efforts to a production that was shooting as the Untitled James Gray Project, later released as The Immigrant. At the time, I was working as a location assistant for native New Yorker and accomplished location manager, Kale Van Grofsky. Set in 1921, this period piece chronicled the struggles of a young woman and her sister as they navigated the complexities of the American immigration process and encounters with one particularly scandalous and misleading citizen. This project sent us in search of locations bearing the age of the early 1900s, which eventually brought us into conversations with the Department of Interior to work out parameters for filming on Ellis Island. Though the incredible history of this location is available to the public, the unprecedented access granted our film crew was something unique and unforgettable. This, of course, came with restricted availability and a long list of post-9-11 security protocols. All working crew, as well as talent, including our 147 background actors, had to complete background screening for pre-authorization to access the island. Access for filming was limited to hours in which the island was void of visitors, which meant an ambitious 10-page overnight was in our future. Ellis Island is only accessible by two means, one being a ferry and the second being a service bridge on the island's west side both of which are accessible from the New Jersey side of the Hudson River. During prep and wrap, we were granted authorization to shuttle equipment, including pre-constructed set pieces by way of the single-lane service bridge. We staged pre-screen set pieces and props in a carriage-style building just west of the main immigration building. As the visitation hours were drawing to an end on the evening of our shoot, we began filing crew and their hand-carried kits through the security at the ferry terminal simultaneously getting background through the works and screening work trucks staged at the security booth for the island's service bridge. Once the last visitor boarded the last ferry of the day, we began our carefully calculated and meticulously orchestrated occupation of the island. Upon exiting the ferry, crew members met their work trucks, and the elements started filing in. HMI blimps were inflated, set deck began erecting aisles of pipe and fencing, Registration counters were shuffled into place, and the mountains of prop luggage began to take shape. Upon their arrival, background actors filed from their ferry to the holding space just one floor below the Great Hall in the main immigration building. Once the lighting blimps were up, the set pieces were in place, and the cameras were assembled and at the ready, we began walking background to set a scene that for decades prior had only been seen in a collection of photographs. Once set, the site was one that had circulated through my imagination since childhood. The thought of my ancestors having come through this facility in such a fashion was overwhelming. It was as if we were traveling back, witnessing the history of this portal, looking into the faces of those who had sacrificed and struggled beyond comprehension in the pursuit of a fresh start and their dreams of freedom. Upon wrap, we scrambled to get the island prepped for its visitors just hours behind us. Background filed onto the first of our ferries, set pieces and equipment started migrating from the Great Hall back to the trucks in the staging area. We rushed to sweep and mop the floors and clear out our trash. As the sun began to rise, I found myself next to the island's trash compactor. It was at this point that all that we had accomplished washed over me. The moment, though short-lived, given the work that was still ahead, would resonate through my soul forever. We were carrying the last piece of furniture from the building, a couch from the green room, 
just as the fairy of the first set of visitors met the dock. We staged the couch in the carriage building for wrap the following day, then let the sun warm our backs as we left by way of the service bridge. And it's with this I conclude my segment, wishing everybody listening good health and good spirits. Take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and remain optimistic for what lies ahead. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Thank you, Matthew, for closing us out and for that heartwarming wrap-up. I do appreciate it. I also want to acknowledge Ian Rutherford. Ian is a co-producer on the show, and he helped coordinate a few of these interviews. I don't think any of us can forget that opening on the freeway in La La Land. Maybe someday there'll be a sign at the location memorializing it as the La La Land Interchange. That'd be pretty cool. I said at the beginning that I'd try to come up with a location that stands out to me as a lover of cinema and someone who digs deep into locations. A location that stands out in my mind, both in terms of why the filmmakers decided to use it and the location's current status, is Pig Burger from 1985's Better Off Dead. The shuttered building is still standing in North Hollywood. I would recommend checking out episode two of the podcast on which director Savage Steve Holland talks all about why he was attracted to the location. It's an amazing story. I want to thank everyone who participated in this episode. It was wonderful and inspiring to connect with you, and I I really enjoyed hearing the stories you submitted. I hope that by submitting a segment, it was a comforting way, if only for a few minutes, to take your minds off the difficult times we're facing now. I'd really love to have you all on proper episodes of On Location with Jared Cowan in the future. A goal of the show is to be able to travel outside of L.A., We want to talk to location professionals, filmmakers all over the world at the locations from your movies or television series. We are an independently produced show. So if you're listening and you're with a film commission or a film office that would be interested in sponsoring the show to come to your city to talk with the filmmakers in your town at the locations in your town, when it's safe to do so, of course, please get in touch with us at Jared, J-A-R-E-D, at onlocationpodcast.com. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook at On Location with Jared Cowan, on Twitter at On Location PC, and on Instagram at On Location Podcast. Be well. Thanks for listening and joining us, kind of, on location. See you next time. Oh,